I want to say there's a good chance you've heard this before. This is the third time I've taught this story from the life of Jesus uh, to you. So hopefully it will sound familiar. The other two teachings have come from Mark, but they are quite similar to what uh, Matthew teaches us this morning. So before you check out and click out of your Bible app and start surfing the web, let me, let me stop you and say, if you are asking the question, have I heard this before, you're using the wrong sense. Okay? The question that I... Not, the big question is not, have I heard this before? The question is, have I seen this in my life? Am I seeing this truth change me? So it's not about, have I heard this? But am I seeing God use this to change me? Because this is a passage that's intended to shape our daily lives every day in every interaction with people. Okay? So... Like the Apostle Paul, I'm going to repeat myself. I hope it will be for your good. Um, I invite you to, to be patient with me in that regard. If you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, the last part of that chapter is where we will be this morning as we teach through the Gospel of Matthew. There is a psychologist at the University of California. His name is Dean Simonton, and he has been studying for over, over the course of three decades. He has been studying greatness what it is, how it's achieved, and who is most likely to achieve it. And he has amassed a database of high-profile figures in this study of 33,000 people from 24 fields, 2,000 scientists, 2,000 philosophers, 500 musicians, over 300 kings, queens, and sultans, 696 composers, 420 writers, and 39 U.S. presidents are built into his study. And what he concluded is that greatness involves making a contribution that is unique, that no one else has made. Think Michael Jordan in basketball, okay? He's, he's decided that, um, he's determined that the most telling characteristic of whether or not you will achieve greatness, that greatness, is the age at which you begin to show interest and ability in a particular field. Bobby Fischer learned to play chess at age six. Pascal wrote an original work on conic sections at the time he was 16. Mozart composed his first keyboard pieces by the time he was five. I preached professionally the first time when I was 33. Um, just saying. Uh, other characteristics of those who have attained greatness were their intelligence, particularly measured by their IQ. You remember those tests in school. And they've devised a system to estimate the intelligence of dead people. So, for instance, U.S. President John Quincy Adams is estimated to have had an IQ of 175. We won't talk about my IQ this morning. Inborn aptitude is another characteristic that is kind of almost a familial greatness that comes to you through your genes. Um, think Judy Garland and her daughter, Liza Minnelli, uh, cousins, Franklin and Teddy Roosevelt, um, the legendary father-son team of Sam and Matt Williams. Um, according, according to Dr. Simonton, then, unless you are a child prodigy, push the upper limits of the IQ charts, while having been born into a family noted for its greatness, you are unlikely candidates for this definition of greatness. 
you are more likely to be cited in a study about mediocrity than greatness. But it's against that backdrop of kind of the seemingly impossible dream of greatness that Jesus today is going to extend to each one of us an invitation and an opportunity to be involved in something greater than greatness. Even to those of us who weren't exactly a child prodigy, may have been called other things when we were children, but not prodigy, Jesus is calling us, even us, to something that is greater than greatness. Now, to make sense out of the conversation that we are listening in on today, I've got to back up once again and set the stage for you because it continues to roll out of a series of teaching that Jesus is doing on the surprising reversals of the kingdom. It's not what the disciples were expecting. Remember back in chapter 19, Jesus teaches that the kingdom is for, for children. It's for little ones. And the disciples are puzzled. This is countercultural. The children get in? Really? And then the rich young ruler comes along, and Jesus turns him away. So the rich, moral, young ruler doesn't get in. Really? The rich rulers don't get in. And then he teaches that teaching where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he tells that story about the workers who go out and work one hour getting paid just as much as people who work a whole day and being way, way happier about it. And Jesus ends all of this prior teaching that's setting the stage for what we're going to look at today with this graphic prediction of his death. Remember this in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, when you read Luke's telling of this prediction of Jesus, he tells us explicitly that this resurrection language went right over the disciples' head. They didn't understand it. But it's hard for me to imagine that they could not understand what Jesus graphically tells them awaits Him in Jerusalem in terms of His suffering and His crucifixion. They are, at this point, near the city of Jericho. It's just one day's journey from Jerusalem. And so it's against this backdrop, okay? Be like children, not like mighty rulers. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to suffer greatly and to die and to be raised again. That's the backdrop for two of the disciples approaching Jesus and asking a question that in light of what we've just talked about is almost unbelievable that they would even bring it up. Let's look at their question. In verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, came up to, her, to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say, say, Jesus, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. 
Now, to mom's credit, she's got a number of things right here. She recognized that Jesus is going to rule over a coming kingdom and that he has authority in that kingdom to assign you know, places to, to people, to reward people. And she reveres him. She kneels down before him. But having said all that, the disconnect between what Jesus taught prior, just taught, and the shape of this request is shocking in terms of its discontinuity. How can such selfish posturing follow right on the heels of such unselfish resolve and clear teaching to the contrary? Jesus just said, the first will be last. And here they come, wanting to be first. See, this, they're asking this now, right on the heels of Jesus' prediction of his suffering would be like you sitting down with your folks and finding out that one of them has cancer. And the first thing out of your mouth is, what furniture can I have in the inheritance? Okay? It's just wrong. Their question reveals what they think it means to be great. Um, it is in their minds to be in positions of greatness above others, commanding their respect and admiration. It is comparative, it is competitive, it is better than, more important than. It's to be the class president or the CEO or the leader of the pack or the band or the team. It is to be number one. That's greatness. Now, watch also how they do it. And we don't know the, the inner schemings of it, but I can imagine that it plays out Something like this. They're trying to think about how they're going to get these positions, and they say, hey, let's bring mom. Now, first, it sounds a little odd for grown men to bring their mom to make a request on their behalf, um, but some scholars think that their mom was Jesus' aunt. So who can resist their aunt on her knees asking a request for her son? It's the perfect plan. But watch what's happened to James and John. You're going to see this unfold. As a result of their pursuit of greatness, they are trying to edge out the other ten disciples, right? And so the other ten disciples, their brothers, have now become their competitors. And friends, I don't know hardly anything that's uglier in the church than competition. We are not in competition with the church down the street. Same team. Jesus is going to slay that spirit in the teaching that he's about to give us. Matt Woodley says that the disciples have turned their community into a vicious episode of Survivor, vying to form alliances and stay on the island while they vote someone else off. And again, it appears that they may even be using their mom as a stepping stone to get what they want. Robert Raines wrote a poem about this. Some of you may remember it. It's called, I am James and John. It goes like this. I am like James and John. Lord, I, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. 
how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. So though the disciples here, these two disciples and their mom, acknowledge Jesus' glory, it is tainted by their pursuit of their own. Dave Harvey has written a very helpful book, and I'd commend it to you. It's called Rescuing Ambition. And in it, he describes his own struggle with the wrong kinds of ambition. He says, uh, I mentioned my struggle with the wrong kinds of ambition. I call them Dave Bishens. So often, he says, I'm Dave Bishes. I assume that my family would work much better if they all majored in Daveology. Friendships would work best if they have a Davetistic bent. Many believe, I believe rather, that many of life's misunderstandings could be cleared up with just a few Daveological insights. Overall, it would be a better place if we could just celebrate an annual Davetoberfest. I guess you can call me, he says, a Daveaholic. And it has its roots in us and in these disciples, James and John, and in their and our wholly misdirected pursuit of greatness. Listen to how Jesus answers them. He says, they asked to sit at his left and right, and Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And Jesus here is telling them that they don't understand two things. They don't understand what true greatness is, and they don't understand what true greatness costs. The language of the cup here is language of suffering. When Jesus talks about drinking my cup, it's an invitation to share in his suffering. And I don't think James and John get this, that the cup is about suffering. Their response is too eager, but they should have gotten it. Remember what Jesus just talked about just before this. He described the cup of suffering he would drink from in detail. Remember he said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Mocked and flogged and crucified. Do you want to drink out of that cup? He says to the disciples and they say, yeah, I'm in. They don't have any idea. It's interesting, some scholars have noticed here that Jesus' language when he says, um, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, anticipates language that Matthew's going to use a few chapters from now to describe the two thieves that hung on the cross, one on Jesus' right and one on his left. And if these two had understood that, I doubt they would have been so eager. Jesus defers the brother's request, indicating that the father has already secured those positions, and he's not about to overturn his father's decisions based upon a mother's request. 
And this is another one of those beautiful examples of submission within the Godhead. I don't really understand the Trinity, but whenever I see it, there's a beauty to it. And it makes me want to worship the one God in three persons. Here you see another beautiful example of submission within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. One writer says that the Son is always subordinate to the Father in eternity as well as in time, but always in such a way that the Son is in no manner any less the one God for His subordination. It's a mysterious, beautiful interaction. But back with the disciples, uh, their plan has failed. They went to all that trouble, and the positions were already filled, Jesus tells them. And to make matters worse, the rest of the disciples found out. Evidently, they weren't as discreet in their request as they should have been. When the ten heard it about the request, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were hacked. They're upset, I'm sure, that two of their own would would try to usurp them in this way. But knowing the 12, they were probably upset a little bit because they didn't think of it first. Okay? This is a common theme when you read about the disciples. They're always kind of pulling off to the side saying, okay, so who's the greatest? And Jesus has to break them up and teach them about it. And that's exactly what he does here. He steps in, calls them together, and explains that there's something greater than being great. And first, first he shows them what greatness is not. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Uh, one of the leadership models of Jesus' day was lording it over folk. There was uh, an emperor at the time, Tiberius Augustus, and he had a coin minted that would bear his image. And under it, he had inscribed these words, he who deserves adoration, okay? That's lording it over someone. But D.A. Carson points out that the expression rendered lorded over can give us a false impression. Jesus is not, he says, criticizing, criticizing abuse of power. That phrase, he says, should be translated simply exercising lordship over. Um, it's about the very I'm greater than you structures themselves, not necessarily the abuse of those structures. See, greatness, as Jesus is talking about it, is not about attaining a position over someone. It's not about becoming better than or more important than or more powerful than. It's not about being president or quarterback or queen. It's not determined by your position or your accomplishments or your intelligence or your heritage. That may be greatness according to Simonton's study. It is not greatness in the eyes of Jesus. Something greater than greatness is here. And he talks about it next. He says, it shall not be so among you, that kind of greatness. But whoever would be great among you <clears throat> excuse me, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, this thing greater than greatness, it's not about power or positions of domination. It's about a posture of serving, 
true greatness is not about exalting me. Jesus says it's about me serving you. And the language here is really interesting and maybe more severe than we imagine. He says, think about it closely with me, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, Jesus is not just telling us a new way to be number one. He's telling us, you must lay that dream aside and become the least important, a slave of all. Jesus is so redefining greatness that He tells us we must abandon our pursuit of it to achieve something greater than it. Ulrich Lutz is a Swiss theologian, and he says, Jesus is not just combating excessive ambition. He is combating the ambition to be great or first at all. Nor is Jesus advocating a higher or lower way to be great. He's talking about giving up the whole idea of wanting to be great at all. Something greater than greatness, comparative, competitive, personal greatness is being offered to us. There's no room for comparative or competitive greatness in Jesus' teaching. There's only room for humble service. That's what he's calling us to. That's the thing that's greater than greatness. Um, the King James Bible is really helpful at this point in time in verse 26. I, I really like this rendering. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Okay. You catch that. Whoever, whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. The minister is the greatest. It's right there in the King. I knew I loved the King James Bible. Okay. I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. But there's a sense in which it should be the case. That your pastor should be the servant of all. I know your pastor. He would welcome your prayers about this matter. Um, but the idea of minister here, um, it's actually where my title comes from. And it meant the guy that waits on your table. It meant your bus boy. Jesus is calling us to take the posture of a bus boy. There's more. He says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Not just a bus boy. You must be a slave. And Dale Bruner points out in modern society, we usually fail to hear the shock value in Jesus' admonition to a discipled slavery. Slave has been aptly defined by some as the non-person who has no rights or existence of his own, who exists solely for others. Jesus says, you must be someone who has no rights of his own, who exists solely for for others. Jesus is calling you and He's calling me to be a slave. What does it look like for you to be truly great? For you and me to embrace this thing that's greater than greatness. Um, there's a fellow, he's a, he's a Christian, 
His name is Nick Walenda, and he has become the most watched high-wire artist and daredevil in the world. His two most recent feats were seen by a billion people, billion with a B, across the world. Last year, 2012, he walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Okay, I'm not kidding. There he is. This has not been photoshopped. Okay? There's another example. You can see him a little better. Last year, he walks a tightrope across Niagara Falls. This year, he walks a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. Here's a view looking down from where Nick Walenda is. Um, now, Walenda uh, is a Christian, and he knows that he'll be tempted by pride. A billion people are watching him, right? So after the huge crowds and the media fade away, he engages in a simple spiritual discipline. He walks where the crowds have just stood and quietly picks up trash. This is what he writes. He says, my purpose is simply to help clean up after myself. The huge crowd left a great deal of trash behind and I feel compelled to pitch in. Besides, after the inordinate amount of attention I have sought and received, I need to keep myself grounded. No pun intended there. Three hours, three hours of cleaning up Debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me, so if I have to force myself into situations that are humbling, so be it. I know that I need to get down on my hands and knees like everyone else. I do it because it's a way to keep me from tripping. As a follower of Jesus, I see him washing the feet of others. I do it because if I don't serve others, I'll be serving nothing but my ego. So what would true greatness, what would this thing that's greater than greatness look like for you and for me? Um, It's probably not going to involve crossing Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, but it might involve trash. Um, For instance, there are workers here. There are co-workers and employees and business partners. Um, Where you work... What would make you a great worker? This kind of greater than great worker that we're talking about. Maybe being more concerned about serving your coworkers than getting to a position where they will serve you. Is that your reputation where you work? Do people know that you are there to serve them by your example, by your deeds? Are you a servant who puts your co-worker's interests above your own? Would you be considered at work a ladder climber or a ladder holder? You know, there are spouses here. What, what would make you a great spouse? And I think of this event that happens almost every weekday in most of our homes. You call it homecoming, right? Somebody's at work, somebody's been home, or both have been out at work, and you come home. And you're exhausted and you're spent and all you want is a little me time with your feet propped up, the game on, a newspaper, a cigar, uh, not cigar, uh, a bathrobe, some slippers. You know, just lavish. Dinner ready, you know. Um. What would greatness look like for a spouse? It might involve, it might involve toilets and trash. 
It might involve actual conversation, even though you're tired. You know, guys, it's a talking, listening thing that your wives want you to do when you come home. What's at the forefront of your mind when you come home and, or when your spouse does? Is it serving her or serving him or is it being served? You know, there, there are kids here today. Um, what makes a kid great? Both my parents have passed away. They've gone to be with the Lord, and I'm confident, though, if you were to ask them a question when they were still alive, you were to say, Is Larry, was Larry a great kid? Um, through the lens of huge parental bias, they would say, yes, Larry was a great kid. That and up against my older brother, who was as ornery as they come. So they would say, yes. They would say, Larry was involved in extracurricular activities that we could be proud of. He was a, he was a good student. He went into a reputable profession as an engineer and then a pastor. He's, he's a good kid. We're, we're proud of him. And, uh, but by Jesus' definition, I fell short of being a great kid. In my youth, I was never good at serving my folks in spite of their endless daily service of me. So, if you're still in your home, then serve your mom and dad, okay, while you still have that privilege. It may not be cool, but you will become great in the eyes of God. Don't settle for cool when you can be great. Far too many of us, we've abandoned our dreams of greatness. We've given it up. We don't have the size or the vertical leap or the voice or the shape or the startup capital or the intellect or the time or to go back for that degree. We've got bad lineage. We're not smart enough. We started too late. Um, what Jesus has done here is to give us a dream of something that's even greater than greatness, he says, because all of us can serve. No one has ever put it as well as Martin Luther King Jr. did when he said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Jesus is offering us, he's calling us to a life that is greater than greatness. Sinclair Ferguson said that Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at His disposal in the place He appoints at the time He chooses with the provision He is pleased to make. And so Jesus is offering that to you, something greater than greatness. It's no longer the property of the physically and intellectually and genetically elite. It's for you. If you follow Christ, it's for you. However, few of us attained this. Because though Jesus has changed the definition of greatness in a sense, He hasn't lowered the standard at all. Remember, the disciples didn't really understand the nature and shape of what true greatness really is, and they didn't understand its cost either. 
And in verse 28, 26 to 28, really, Jesus talks about that cost. He says to them again, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as I mentioned, he's one day's journey from Jerusalem. And there he is going to, in just a few days after that, Jesus is going to lay down his life as he is nailed to the cross. You remember his prediction? Mocked, flogged, and crucified. There in Jerusalem. James and John, though they don't get it now, eventually they do. James dies a martyr's death following Christ. John would be exiled to the, as a prisoner to the Isle of Patmos, from which he would write the book of Revelation. Do we all have to be martyrs? Do we all have to be exiled in prison somewhere? Not necessarily. But we have to release our dreams of greatness before men, of greatness for our sake, and be willing to become a servant, a busboy, a slave for the sake of another. And the greatness of a servant will often, if not almost always, cost you greatness before men. Nobody knows who the great servants are. The rare exception to that is someone I think of like Mother Teresa, amazing servant, but worldwide renowned, and that's exceptional. For instance, how many of you know who took over Mother Teresa's ministry in Calcutta when she died? Exactly. You may very well end up unknown, and serving those that you had hoped would serve you. Jesus would gird himself with a towel, he'd wash his friend's feet, and then he'd say, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, the task of a slave. And this is not in us. It is not natural for us. And Jesus came to deliver us, to set us free from the bonds of selfish, sinful self-exaltation and the pursuit of comparative and competitive greatness. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We must be, we need to be ransomed bought, purchased, rescued at great cost from our sin by Jesus, the servant king, set free from our selfishness by nothing less than the gospel, the good news of the loving, humble, sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus for us, for greatness wannabes, us. He died. He ransomed us. There's a number of ways to think about Jesus' death, about the atonement, a number of different beautiful theories about that. One of them is that Jesus, in doing this, was a good moral example. Another is that 
Jesus died as our substitute for our sins, bearing our sins. And both of those theories, both of those teachings are present in this verse. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He is both example and substitute. Have you embraced Jesus as your substitutionary Savior? That He died on the cross, you acknowledge this, that He died on the cross not because of His sins, but because of yours and others like you. Dale Bruner cites a theologian who says, Jesus did nothing wrong. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. He is our substitute. Is He your substitute? Have you placed your faith in Jesus that His substitutionary death ransoms you from your sins? Will you trust in His ransoming work on the cross to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, which is to pay for your sins, to buy your freedom from your sins. If you have done that, will you follow his example as a humble servant, abandoning the pursuit of personal greatness over others to become their servant, their busboy, even their slave, one who exists solely for others? That's what Jesus is commanding of us today. that what Jesus said of Himself could also be said of you. He came not to be served, but to serve. I have a friend who used to be a pretty successful guy in the business world. Um, he, he got sent all over the place by his company. I know he traveled to China, and I think he was in places like Japan and Korea. I mean, he, he got sent all over. I'm not like getting sent to Henderson and Lewisburg. He got sent nationally, internationally uh, in his company. And um, he eventually retired in part so that he could take care of his ailing wife who had another bout with cancer. And um, eventually he lost her. And then this high-powered business guy took a job as a church custodian. He became a janitor. And on the one hand, he did it so that he wouldn't just be sitting around the house all day and being swallowed up by grief of losing the woman that he loved for 42 years. But on the other hand, he did it because he wanted to be a servant. He wanted to serve the church. He wanted to serve your church. He works here. Coming in this morning uh, into the services, and I see a lady that I found out this week had been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And so I, I run out, I give her a big hug, and I ask her how she's doing. She says, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. She says, pray for me that I don't miss this, miss this opportunity. And then she said, I'm going to be sitting around with suffering people, and you know I've never met a stranger. Pray that I don't miss this opportunity. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life 
as a ransom for many. Jesus is calling us to something greater than greatness. What does that mean for you? Let's pray. As I was reading this passage to prepare to preach, I got partway through it, and I audibly said, "Uh uh-oh. I knew I was in trouble. And it may be this morning that you are listening and you are saying, "Uh uh-oh, too. Don't let that be all that you say. Say yes. Lord, help us say yes to follow the one who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.